this, the Dalai Lama says, whenever he meets someone, he never, never, never introduces himself as his holiness, the Dalai Lama. He says he always tries to relate to the person on a basic human level. And on that level, he knows that just like me, he wishes to find happiness. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of Live an Extraordinary Life. I am your host, Tim Bishop, and this podcast serves as a guide to help you to find what an extraordinary life is for yourself. So this episode is another episode about a piece of content that I have read, and it's called The Book of Joy, and I'm actually grabbing it right now. So The Book of Joy was written by Douglas Abrams. Um, but it was based off of an interview he had with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So both these guys are spiritual leaders in the world, the Dalai Lama being a Buddhist spiritual leader and Archbishop Desmond Tutu being a Catholic spiritual leader. And what's really cool about this book, if you step back and think about it, is you know, some people devote their life's work to finance. So let's say you study finance, you work 60 years in the industry, 40 years, however long. And by the end, you're a pretty big expert in finance and you have a lot to share with the world about investing or whatever kind of finance that you, you know, were involved in your career. These guys basically committed their life to spirituality, to compassion, to gratitude, to love, to joy. And now they're sharing all that work with the world. And they're probably some of the most influential people that live on planet earth um, right now. So I'm really excited to share some of the stuff in this book with you guys. And I'm just really excited that I have the opportunity to hear from these two great minds. The book is called The Book of Joy. The subtitle is Lasting Happiness in a Changing World. And the book, they basically, before they had their interviews, they allow the general public to submit a bunch of questions to them. And the most question that, or the most asked question they got was, how do you find joy in a world with so much suffering. So that was kind of their lens they took when trying to tackle this, right? Because even in the Buddhist tradition, like suffering is an inevitable part of life. But you know, there is a lot of things going on personally at a small scale from the stress we deal with our day-to-day life to the, you know, the bigger stuff, to the environmental issues, to the race issues, to the inequality issues, the political issues, right? I mean, there's huge things going on. And you know, how do we find joy amidst the stressors big and small that happens in our life. So I want to talk about not the whole book, but I'm going to summarize a couple of things. And then I just want to talk you through the eight pillars of joy that they identified in the book, but that they, that they consider the eight pillars of joy. And if this sparks your interest, then I would highly recommend picking up the book, a copy for yourself. The book's incredible because at the end too, there's 30 plus practices of things you can do to experience more joy in your life based off of certain things that are happening to you. So it's all pretty incredible. So I'm going to dive into a few points here that they talked about, and then I'm going to go into the eight pillars of joy and we'll wrap it up. So first off, I want to talk about Richard Davidson. Now, Richard Davidson um, is one of the lead neuroscientists in the world studying the brain and the connection it has with things like mindfulness, meditation, and all these other things. So the Dalai Lama and him are really good friends because the Dalai Lama is very interested in the future of neuroscience and how it will support and back a lot of the stuff that he preaches. So one of the interesting things I found that I just wanted to share uh, that Richard Davidson found was that there's actually four ind- independent brain circuits that influence our lasting well-being. So the first is our ability to maintain positive states. So that makes sense. Our ability to be positive, our ability to have positive emotions be in our life for the long term. The second is interesting, and this is a totally independent part of our brain, but it's our ability to recover from negative states. 
you know, I started thinking about this in my life and a lot of people's lives where, you know, maybe you are a positive person and you normally are in a positive state. But when something really bad happens to you in your life and you enter a negative state, you might not be all that good at getting out of that negative state and back to your positive state. And those are two totally independent parts of the brain. The lesson I took from that was, you know, just if you go through something and you're feeling down and you're feeling like you've lost that sense of positivity, don't be too hard on yourself because it's actually a different part of your brain you need to train. You haven't lost this positive, you know, all is good mindset in, in your life. You're just learning how to train a different part of your brain. And there's things that you can do to help yourself get out of the negative states. And these are a lot of these practices that I mentioned are at the end of this book that I'm not going to read through all those because that would take a long time. But again, if you want to find those, they're in the book. Our third part of our lasting well-being of the brain is our ability to, our ability to focus and avoid mind wandering. Now, this is cool because again, this is where meditation comes into play because Richard Davison says that you know meditation exists to develop this. The reason, well, one of the reasons that you can meditate would be our ability to focus and train your brain to focus. So, the most simple form of meditation would probably be focusing on your breath, and again, it's your breathing. You're breathing, you're focusing on your breath, you acknowledge your breath goes away, and you refocus on your breath. And over time, what you're doing is you're training your brain to stay focused. Or if your brain loses focus, you're training your brain to be able to snap back quick onto our train of focus, onto our train of focus and our train of thought. Again, supporting meditation like I do in a lot of my episodes, there's four independent brain circuits that influence our lasting well-being. And meditation can be a tool to making one of those circuits strong and well and alive. So there's another good reason to meditate if you haven't started trying already. And our fourth one is our ability to be generous. And this is also really cool because, you know, you just think no wonder our brain feels so good when we help people, right? And we're generous to others and when we offer gifts and blessings to others because it's literally a part of our lasting well-being. Part of our brain reacts positively always to being generous to others. So I just want to share with that a little bit of the science. I'm not going to dive too much into other uh, to the rest of Richard Davidson's work, but if you're interested in like the neuroscience aspect of all of this, I highly recommend to check out Richard Davidson. Um, he's got a lot of great books and a lot of great content out there online you can look into. A few other points that I really enjoyed about this book is just the idea is, you know, we talk about being present a lot and being present and being there for people and, and not living in the past, the future, and what that, what that really means. And the Dalai Lama had a great quote that I liked that kind of summed up what he thought being present in the world was. And it was as simple as this. And he says, perhaps this is what it means to be present, to be available for each moment and each person we encounter. And I liked that vocabulary of just saying, be available. You know, how often in our life are we somewhere, but we're not, we're not there, right? We're thinking about something else or we're not really giving the person the attention they need or the thing the attention they need. And to him, being present is just being fully available for the people and the things in our life as they are happening and not living in other times, aka the past or the future. With this, a lot of a lot of suffering comes from wanting things to be different than they are. And this is how we live in the past or the future a lot. But he says that so much of our heartache is wanting to wanting things to be different than they are. And I've heard about this a lot, where a lot of our anxieties and stress in the world are simply caused by the difference between our reality and our expectations. You know, we have expectations of how the way things are, but the reality is different. And when these two things aren't aligned, there can be a lot of discomfort that goes on, whether that's in the form of anxiety, stress, 
fear, whatever, but learning to accept things for the way they are and be in that present moment will take away a lot of that suffering. And then what he also says is that basically suffering can be either the thing that destroys us or it can be the thing that pushes us forward. So it can either make us bitter or we can find meaning in it. And without meaning, suffering seems useless. It seems like, why are we suffering? But when we find meaning, meaning to it, it can enable us to do incredible things. You can understand that the suffering is building us to be the person that we want to become as it did for people. For example, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu was you know, in the apartheid in South Africa and he saw what you know, Nelson Mandela did. So you look at people like that who find suffering as a way to become the person they're meant to become and they find meaning in it rather than letting it destroy them and tear them down. And the last couple of things I want to mention before I get into the eight pillars of joy is that you know, the Dalai Lama really explains this concept uh, in Buddhism called interdependence. And it's really the idea that everything in our lives are interdependent, socially, personally, he says subatomically, but in our environment, you know, every living species, everything is interdependent. And this idea that independence and that we want to be independent and be on our own and experience life on our own is kind of a myth. And he says, once we can understand that and start to understand that we were born to live totally dependent on each other, it helps us come to terms with a more realistic view of reality and the idea that we'll never be independent and we shouldn't strive for independence because it actually never truly exists. So what we should strive for is to live optimally within a state of interdependence with all the things that are going on around us, including our friends, family, our environment, the food we eat, and everything that we do. And then finally, when talking about happiness in this episode or in this book, the kind of happiness that they talk about here is eudaimonic happiness. So the, the common kind of happiness talked about is hedonic happiness, and that would be like the happiness you get from singing and dancing and pleasurable sort of things. That is the more what we would call probably short-term happiness. It gives you a high, a sense of, a sense of um, you know, adrenaline, but it doesn't last forever. The eudaimonic happiness is characterized by self-understanding, meaning, growth, and acceptance. This is kind of the kind of happiness that they're talking about as they have their conversations here. That's just something I liked about the book. But now I want to dive into the eight pillars of joy they talk about, which are really powerful and uh, really can do a lot for you if you take a moment to think about them and really reflect on them. So the first pillar of joy that they talk about is perspective. It's really simple if you think about it. There's just so many different angles to look at things. If you look at your life in one way, you could say, oh, like, how bad is this? This is really sad. But if you look at the same thing in a new light, you might see the opportunity or the lesson it teaches you, or the difference between where you are and where somebody else is, right? It's all about perspective. And the issue with this is our brains don't comprehend absolute happiness. Our brains comprehend relative happiness. So we look at the people around us, we compare, we compare ourselves to them, and that's how we kind of measure our, how well we're doing. When in reality, is sometimes if you step back and take a new lens at it, a new perspective, you know, me being a, and most of my listener, listeners, I assume, being from the United States of America and growing up in a pretty decent living condition, you know, we're very fortunate even to have the luxuries that we have. So sometimes you step back, take a new perspective, a new lens at it, a new approach, maybe try to be in another person's, act like you are not in your own body and look at it as if it was somebody else and say, how would you think about this? How would you 
how would you look at this if it was somebody else? And there's just always another perspective we can take. So whenever something's going wrong in our lives, so when we have stress or fear or anxieties, it's always important to look at it from multiple perspectives and to understand that you know, you're only one of 8 billion people on earth and you view things one way. There's also a million and a billion other ways that people view the same scenario. So just be open to those new perspectives and understand that when things are going wrong, it, it might only take a perspective shift in your mind to start moving forward. And Viktor Frankl actually, and Viktor Frankl, if you haven't heard of him, was a man who survived the Auschwitz Nazi concentration camp. He wrote a book called A Man's Search for Meaning. It is a very powerful book. I highly recommend it. I hope to do an episode about that book shortly. But Frankl says that our perspective towards life is our final and ultimate freedom. Now, this man had his family taken and killed, taken and killed his entire possession and belonging taken, and everything taken. But what he said couldn't be taken from him was his mind and his perspective on what was happening. And he thinks that's the only reason he survived is because he was able to find a new light amidst suffering that is unimaginable to almost all of us. So again, it's really about taking a more holistic view of reality and what's going on. And also at the same time, it's starting to understand that, you know, you're not the only one who's gone through this, right? Whatever you're suffering with in your life, a lot of people have gone through this to understand that, you know, it's not the world beating up on you. It's not your life is miserable and everybody else is amazing. It's, you know, everyone goes through similar things and to know that people have gotten out of what you are trying to get out of also helps us feel more confident and strength as we try to look at things in a new light. So the second pillar of joy is humility. I like this. I mean, the Dalai Lama has a crazy view of this, but you know, they kind of talk about how none of us are immune to being human, right? We're all human. We all make the same mistakes. The things that we give other people crap for, that we make fun of other people for, or get stressed them for is the same shit that we do. So it's really important to acknowledge that and to not feel like you're better than anybody else because we all make the same mistakes. We all do things that we want other people to do with us and we're human and we screw up. And where you can come to a better understanding and view of reality is when you start to understand that because then you stop you know, having this, this egoistic mindset that could get you in trouble. But two is you start to have more compassion for others. You start to see other side of things and they screw up. You, you say, hey, I would, I would probably have screwed up once too. And, and you can meet people more where they're at on a human sense rather than on the lens of kind of like this, this image that we place. I think sometimes we forget that like we're all just people and we're all just trying to do our best and everybody's just trying to be happy. And I really like this. The Dalai Lama says, whenever he meets someone, he never, never, never introduces himself as his holiness, the Dalai Lama. He says he always tries to relate to the person on a basic human level. And on that level, he knows that just like me, he wishes to find happiness. And again, that's such a beautiful lens to look at life. Like when you say, look, everybody's just trying to be happy and people all try to go about that in different ways. But once we get acknowledged that we all have the same goal, you know, at least we're all trying to fight for the same thing. It helps us connect more. And again, to have more humility in those moments, to understand that we're not better than anyone else. We're just going about things a different way. And, and we can all learn and teach each other as we go through this process. So the third pillar of joy is humor. Because laughter and joking is much better than taking life too seriously. And again, this is pretty self-explanatory, this one. Like humor connects you to people like nothing else. If you can enjoy life with each other, be a, a source of laughter for people, or be a source that 
you know, accepts humor and accepts laughter, right? It's good for you. It's better for your heart. It's better for your health in, you know, actual scientific sense. But it also, again, just helps you take life a little bit less seriously and helps you eliminate stress. Um, probably a lot of the times if you're willing to laugh at others, laugh at yourself and just being more open to the idea of humor and not taking every little detail of life too seriously. Pillar number four of joy is acceptance. And this is fantastic. Acceptance, they say, is the only place that change begins. And there's this incredible quote that says, why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy if it cannot be remedied? This is kind of like that one of the Bible quotes that says, like, God grant me the serenity to, you know, basically have the understanding of the things that I can change and the things that I cannot change and the wisdom to know what the difference is between those two. I didn't, that wasn't the exact quote, but I was just summarizing it. But basically understanding that if we can change something, let's not be unhappy about it and let's work to change it. And if we can't change something, then let's accept that for what it is and not let it ruin our you know, existence if we can't change it. And I like this because, you know, people always will ask me like, well, dude, you're always, you know, on this personal growth mission and you're always traveling and you always seem to be doing these new projects. And do you always want more? Like, is it, is it more you want? And, and I answer, no, it's not more that I want. I answer basically because of this book that I've accepted my reality. I've accepted where I am right now. And I love my life for what it is right now. You know, I'm a, a basically a broke young kid who is hustling to try to make it and do big things. And I love my life right now. And I'm not trying to escape my life or find a new life. But all I'm trying to do is to keep building and to keep working towards you know, what I want my reality to be someday. But that all starts with accepting the present moment and accepting what's going on. So that could be accepting positive things, accepting negative things, accepting the discomforts of, of daily life. And again, like I mentioned earlier, like the Dalai Lama has told us that a lot of stress and anxiety comes from our expectations of how life should be right now. And how if our expectations and our reality aren't matching right now, it causes a lot of dissonance. So you have to accept your reality currently and then set expectations for how you would like your future to be. The interesting thing about this, he says, this is kind of in regards to the goal setting, right? So you have a reality and you set a goal for how you want reality to be in maybe six months, a year, or however long you set your goals. And this is a really, really cool quote from the book because he talks about the paradox of goals. And this is a, a friend that was saying this to him, but he said, there's an important insight here that there's a deep recognition, and this is a direct quote from the book, that while each of us should do everything we can to realize the goal we seek, whether or not we succeed often depends on many factors beyond our control. So our responsibility is to pursue the goal with all the dedication we can muster, do the best we can, but not become fixated on a preconceived notion of a result. Sometimes, actually quite often, our efforts lead to an unexpected outcome that might even be better than what we originally had in mind. I think this is a beautiful quote. It's basically saying, again, it's the cheesy quote of it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. When you set intention on going on a journey to create a reality that you want, once you've accepted where you're at and you set a goal and you move forward, you know, don't become insanely fixated on it. Just again, becoming exactly how you imagine because it won't. You can't even possibly imagine all the external variables that are going to come up and you can't imagine all the good things that are going to come up. So set that goal, move forward towards it 
and understand that your reality will come into form in a way that will work out for you. And you have to just kind of trust that process. So I really liked how they decided to word that. Pillar number five is forgiveness. And this is just freeing yourself from the past. You know, forgiving a lot of the times isn't for others. It's for yourself. Um, there's this incredible story actually of a mother who her son was killed by another son when they were really young. And actually the mother started visiting the, the son while he was in jail. Asked him why, why did he do it? At first it was anger. And then she started to realize that this kid had really nobody in his life. And he didn't have a family or anywhere to go. And she started asking him, well, where are you going to go when you get out of jail? And he didn't know. He basically didn't have a lot of options. And she decided that she was going to offer to let him stay in her house. So now the man that killed her son is living in her house and eventually decides to thank her. And she basically just says, look, I didn't do this for you. I did this for me. You know, the idea that somebody could forgive someone in that regard um, shows a lot of power because again, you're just freeing yourself from your past. You're freeing yourself from guilt. And if you don't do that, you'll always live, your, live in the past. And again, that's a huge extreme example, but anything in your life where you're living in the past or you're not forgiving yourself or others, you, know, you must, you have to forgive because if you don't, you're always going to live in the past and the present and the future will never be as sweet if you don't forgive and move on. Pillar number six is gratitude. Gratitude has become a huge part of my life. And the Dalai Lama just says, every time he wakes up, think, you know, I'm fortunate to be alive. I have a precious human life and I'm not going to waste it. Really, this correlation between happiness and gratitude is interesting because a lot of the neuroscientists and spiritual leaders and psychologists are saying it doesn't start with happiness. It actually starts with gratitude. Gratitude is what creates the happiness in our world. You know, scientists have long, long been talking about how the default state of our brain kind of has a negative bias and it had advantages for survival um, when that was our focus, you know, in early stages of humanity, when we were living in more tribal settings, in more natural settings, survival was key. But now it's not as important. And we have this fight or flight response that happens in our brain that causes us to kind of always be more negative and to have stress and to react to that. But now it isn't really necessary in today's world. And gratitude is a way to kind of break in to this default mode of the mind. It allows us to see the good in the world. And actually, the more we think about gratitude, the more we do a gratitude practice daily, the more we remind ourselves of things in our life that we're grateful for the more we're actually rewiring our brain to focus more on the good things and to actually just naturally see those good things in everyday life. So picture the, again, I said this before, but picture the gratitude practice like going to the gym and lifting weights, right? You'd lift weights, you'd go for a run or you'd stretch or do yoga, whatever you like to do, dance. You know, you do those things to keep your body physically fit. But at the same time, to keep your mind mentally fit and to be able to experience joy you have to reset this default state of the brain that has this negative bias and gratitude and experiencing gratitude is a great way to do that. Pillar number seven is compassion. You know, compassion is really just being able to help alleviate other people's suffering. And both these guys talk a lot about how focusing on others' suffering and being there for others is one of the best ways to rid ourselves of our own suffering. And again, this goes back to the generous part of the brain. This 
that um, you know, as one of the keys to lasting happiness, it goes back to the idea that when we focus on others and help others, we start to gain perspective on our own lives and our sufferings don't seem as bad as they once did. And it's a very practical thing, really. They call it the true secret happiness is helping others, being compassionate for others will give your life a lot of purpose and meaning. There is a psychologist, Kristen Neff, and this is a quote from the book, and it talk about ways to express self-compassion. And I'm just going to read this quote from the book. It says, when we treat ourselves with compassion, we accept that there are parts of our personality we may not be satisfied with. We do, we do not berate ourselves that we try to address them. When we go through a difficult time, we are caring and kind to ourselves as would be to a friend or relative. When we feel inadequate in some way, we remind ourselves that all people have these feelings or limitations. When things are hard, we recognize that all people go through similar challenges. And finally, when we are feeling down, we try to understand this feeling with curiosity and acceptance rather than rejection or self-judgment. So again, there's compassion for others and there's compassion for yourselves and finding ways to not be too hard on people, not be too hard on yourself, understand others' perspectives, and really just be there for people is a huge key to joy. And finally, drumroll please, the last pillar of joy is generosity. Again, Richard Davidson and his colleagues have mapped out those four parts of the brain that really map to long-term well-being. And generosity was one of the strongest predictors of well-being worldwide with all factors considered in the quality of our relationships and the pro-social behaviors that ensue because of this are a huge impact on people having a happy life. One of the really important things that the Dalai Lama talks about is that you know now that education is very secular, right? There's not a lot of religion involved in education. And that took out a lot of the formal education around some of these core teachings that were in religions, teachings of compassion, of basic ethics, not based off of religious belief, but now doing it based off of scientific findings. Because that's going to be one of the key parts of the future is saying that just teaching a religion isn't going to be enough. It's going to be teaching the science behind ethics, the science behind compassion, so we can live in a better world and so we can ultimately discover our own joy and how to have a happy life. This book's incredible. Again, I really recommend to check it out. There's amazing practice at the end of the book. These pillars of joy, when you read the whole chapters, you just have a whole new light on the world. And everyone that I know that has read it, it's impacted them greatly. I mean, the top three books in my life, my, my power three are The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, The Blue Zone Solutions by Dan Buettner, and this book, The Book of Joy. And so I would recommend this to anybody. And, you know, it's really just, again, understanding that the ultimate source of happiness is within ourselves. It's not machines, not technology, it's not money, it's not power. It's somewhere within ourselves. In order to become a happier person, we must take this sense of responsibility to find compassion for ourselves and for others and to understand that happiness is within our grasp. And if we can make this attempt in a realistic way, the Dalai Lama and the Archbishop both say that maybe someday we can live in a happier and more peaceful world. With that being said, thanks for tuning in another episode of Live an Extraordinary Life. And as always, go live an extraordinary life yourself.